This is the Yield Coach Show Season 1, Episode 7. As always, every episode, we bring you dynamic entrepreneurs, real estate investors, business leaders, inspirational guests, ready to open up, share their story, the good, the bad, the ugly, so you can learn lessons, gain advantages, and accelerate your own success. I am your host, Ian Brown. I am joined today by our guest, Chris Grinzig. Chris is founder of JAG Communities and JAG Capital Partners, which is a vertically integrated multifamily focused investment firm based right in Jacksonville, Florida. Chris started his investing in 2016 by attempting to flip houses in Long Island, New York. After months of failing in that effort, he attempted out of state purchasing tax deeds and finally found some footing in multifamily investing. Chris joint ventured approximately 100 units, then decided to join the Toro Real Estate Partners to head their Florida operations. With Toro, he was involved in the purchase of 1,000 multifamily units in Florida, and Toro purchased 4,000 units worth over $300 million during his four and a half years with that company. Chris left Toro in November of 2020 to start his own company, JAG Capital and JAG Communities, which he will tell us more about, and he now owns and manages small to mid-sized multifamily in Jacksonville or the greater Jacksonville market. Chris currently has a unit count of 60, 60 units valued at approximately $6 million with a 10-year vision to scale to $500 million or approximately 5,000 units. Chris, thanks for being a guest on the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. If you don't mind, let's just do a little bit of background. Tell us about yourself. Yeah, so grew up in New York, uh, went to college there um, and graduated in 2014, just general business and stuff. and. You know, when I got out of school, I didn't really know what I was going to do. So luckily got a Division two coaching job, bounced around that for a little while, um, but decided that wasn't really it for me. So got my first job in the quote-unquote business world, <clears throat> which was being a, a cold caller for a stock brokerage company. Did that for about six months, got licensed, was licensed for six months, but it sucked. It was just uh, not a great business to be in. Um, didn't really sit well with me. So luckily, while I was getting licensed officially. My mom and my cousin decided they wanted to start flipping houses up in New York. So that's kind of how I got introduced into real estate. I knew nothing before that. The closest thing to real estate was I rented a house. Otherwise, uh, I didn't know anything. So, you know, we got educated. We were trying to do stuff nights and weekends. And like you touched on, failed. Never bought a house, never flipped one, never even had one under contract. So we were doing a lot of things wrong. We kind of knew that and we were like, all right, we, we really need to figure this out more or change what we were doing and we just thought new york was going to be a tough place to do it a lot of competition a lot of outside money thin margins and you know a lot of people that will buy all cash so not always the easiest place to do it um right wrong or indifferent that's what we thought at the time and decided to pivot so like you mentioned tried a couple different things and then eventually uh got introduced to john cohen so he was one of the co-owners over at toro but before joining toro uh, we partnered on you know, some smaller multifamily stuff. So that hundred units that you referred to. And while we were working on those, um, I happened to be talking to, to John one day and we happened to have worked for the same people as stockbrokers. He had just done it five years prior. So it was like small world and he had gotten into real estate full time. So I was like, Hey, I want to, you know, do this full time. Like, you know, what do I need to do? Blah, blah, blah. And just ended up being that him and his partner, Don at Toro, which were, focused on much larger assets, 100 to 500 units, five to 50 million bucks. 
um, they were thinking about bringing somebody in to help them out and just kind of right place, right time. They said, why don't you come over? We'll do like a, a three month trial, see how it goes, a couple hundred bucks a week or something like that. And three months turned into four and a half years, turned into me running everything kind of in Florida. Um, they kind of coached me up, you know, how they did it in the first, I don't know, six to 18 months, something like that. And then for roughly three, three and a half years, just did everything in Florida. So found the deals, you know, offered on them, um, you know, did the due diligence, communicated with the property managers that we employed here uh, once we closed on them, you know, did all the asset management and then helped on the disposition side as well. So we bought seven properties here, roughly a thousand units. Uh, we went full cycle on two. When we left, we still owned five. Um, since I've left, they've, they've sold one other. Um, and I just got a, you know, a ton of knowledge from them, a ton of experience, which I'm, I'm really grateful for. But during COVID, um, I decided I wanted to buy something on my own. I wasn't planning on leaving, to be very frank, um, but found a deal over in Orange Park, which is not technically part of Jacksonville, but within the MSA. And 16 unit deal, that was basically a mirror image of a deal we had just bought for Toro in the same submarket. So I really liked it. I was able to move quick on it, put it under contract, and just through the whole closing process, um, just decided that it was the right time and place to kind of go off on my own. And part of that was I wanted to move to the market and actually build out a, a company that's vertically integrated because Toro would outsource property management and any you know construction stuff as well, which a lot of times the property managers would oversee, but sometimes you have an owner's rep that will see kind of your bigger capital projects. Um, and I did that for two reasons. One, I think having that control uh, can only lead to the better potential for operations. Doesn't necessarily mean I'm good enough for know what I'm doing, so it doesn't mean I'll be better than a third party, but I think the potential is higher to be better when you have everybody literally going to the same, you know, everybody's on the same values, everybody's on the same path. Uh, you have one way of doing everything. You don't have a property manager that has their systems that have to satisfy, you know, handful or dozens or, you know, multiple dozens of clients. Um, you know, so I think the control level's better. And then two, I also personally just wanted to learn. I felt me getting dirty and in the weeds would elevate my knowledge. And worst case scenario, if in three years I was like, hey, one, I don't want to do the property management anymore. I would just have a better understanding of how it works. Or two, if I decided, hey, I actually don't really want to work for myself. I would prefer to just work for somebody else. Well, it would only make me more valuable to go out and get another job as well saying, hey, not only did I work for another company for four and a half years, I actually went out and worked for you know myself doing this for however long. Um, and you know, I don't see myself leaving anytime soon now that we're a year into it, but that was kind of the, the mindset behind it. Um, but yeah, we bought 60 units, um, 20 of those 60 is supposed to close tomorrow. Um, working on another development site and we actually just got a, a 12 unit deal under contract too. So pretty excited. Well, congratulations. You're Thank off you. for the races. You know, that, that was it uh, November What's my note here, November, 2020. Yeah. So just over a year. Yeah. That's great. And not to mention, just to state the obvious, um, you know, November 2020, um, you know, it it was a it was a frightening time for a lot of people. You weren't sure where the market was going to head. Um, obviously, we just kept getting stronger and stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we really haven't seen we're getting a, a little bit of an uptick in some interest rates, but nothing significant yet on the agency side. And cap rates are certainly compressed. So um I would like to pause and go back a little bit. You have an interesting story. First of all, for those that are, if you're watching this, 
We are on Instagram Live. Hello, Instagram Live. If you're listening to this recording later on Spotify or iTunes or Google, bear in mind, we're going to try and get as much of this on Instagram Live as we can. And if you have questions for the guest or myself along the way, you can comment on Instagram Live. It's a little hard for us to get everything answered, but even today, for those of you watching live, you got a question for Chris, question for me, blast a comment, and, uh, and we'll do our best to field it towards the end. Um, and again, you just follow us on Yield Coach on Instagram to be able to watch this live and comment. All right, jumping back into Chris here, you know, so you're in New York, um, you're flipping houses, as you, as you said, ineffectively, but um, you must have some entrepreneurs in your family. If, if it sounds like you and mom or you and the family are flipping in 16, um, so, so maybe not entirely risk averse by nature. Mm -hmm. Is that true? Or did mom pull you into the flipping or did you talk her into it? Uh, so she pulled me into it. So <clears throat> she had actually retired. She was uh, in education for, I don't know, as long as I can remember, probably, you know, even before we were born. Um, but yeah, she was in education and wanted to do something else. But she worked her way up to being, you know, assistant superintendent for, I think, the second largest school district in Long Island and ran payroll, which was like hundreds of millions of dollars worth of it. So like basically working for like a four, you know, being the head of HR for like a Fortune 500 company, but it's a public school district, so yeah. it's not nearly the same. Um, but yeah, also too, you know, my, you know, so my JAG stands for uh, J.A. Grenzigan son. So it's four decades worth of um, men on my dad's side who had a electrical contracting business. Oh. Um, my dad was the one who kind of broke the chain. He worked for my opa, because from Germany. Um, and he decided to do something else. So he started a company called Genesco Products, which did like a printer refilling and stuff back when you had like toner cartridges and laser jet and all that stuff. Um, and eventually sold it when we were kids. So yeah, there's a, you know, a lot of entrepreneurial stuff in and around my life. So it's not something that's super foreign to me or not kind of like talked about or, or thought about. Yeah. I ask us a, a question similar to that on so far, almost all the interviews, but I just find it interesting to see, you know, you're a younger guy, um, but you're doing so much and your experience is deep. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, so to have the courage to do that, you know, in your mid to early 20s, I often wonder, is it just innate in people? Because, you know, you listen to other podcasts like Bigger Pockets or, or Rod Cleave, or there's a recurring question, and I ask a similar one later, like kind of what separates people. Mm -hmm. And the what I always hear resonating is just like essentially – do you have the courage? Some people just never have like the fortitude or the courage to take the first step. Because in my opinion, if you take the first step, you, as long as you make it incremental and like, you know, slice that loaf of bread nice and thin and just take it down a, a, a piece at a time, you're probably not going to fall on your face like with any one little step. Mm. I think when people try to do like a giant heroic leap in a new direction, there's a lot of risk there. So um, I think coming from a family of entrepreneurs where you know to just you know, bite, chew, <clears throat> bite, chew, repeat, repeat. And eventually you take down the whole project. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So you're young, the flipping didn't work out, but you obviously got the real estate niche in bug. You find the multifamily as a good fit. It looks to me just based on your bio, you know, that Toro connection was kind of a, uh, a golden ticket, if you will. I mean, it was like in, in today's market and probably some people watching right now, trying to find like a legitimate qualified mentor not that easy. I mean, there's a lot of mentorship programs you could pay for. Mm -hmm. You could give somebody $30,000 and become their mentee, go to some meetups. But as far as somebody that's going to really take you under their wing and show you their entire enterprise, that's not easy to come by. So you said you met um, John Toro. 
was that, you know, he was in some of the stock trading as well. Was that by happenstance? Did you seek him out? Because obviously the Toro connection is a critical piece of your story with the mm -hmm. mentorship. Can you speak to that, um, that connection? Yeah, so while we were trying to do the flipping and stuff, we just started going to a bunch of events and networking. Mm -hmm. And we met John's cousin when we were trying to go out of state for flipping. That was like our next pivot, you know, in state. And then we said, all right, let's try out of state. So we met him and we actually agreed to be a small loan for one of his projects because originally what we were trying to do was we said, all right, let's try and JV on a flip to like see what somebody else is doing. And like, we'll do all the, the grunt work, so to speak, and just try to learn. And like, we don't need to make that much and we can help a little bit on the money side because we had some money set aside um, between the three of us. And we did that with Brian and then that went okay. I mean, we did fine as the loan, I think. He probably wish he would have done a little bit better, but it is what it is. And Brian decided to introduce us to John through that. And when we originally talked with John, we were just, we were still learning. I mean, we were super green. We probably, if I probably talked to myself now, I'd be like, this guy has no idea what the hell he's doing. Um, which is fine, right? Everybody's at that stage at some point. Um, but we just wanted to meet with him. I forget even what the original introduction was about, but he had gotten started buying tax deeds down in Philadelphia, basically buying stuff for pennies on the dollar. And, you know, sometimes you walk in and, you know, the house just needs a fresh coat of paint and a little bit of love and it's good to sell or rent. Or sometimes you walk in and it's missing a roof and, you know, you just give it back and you're like, oh, no thanks. Like we, you know, you might pay like 500 bucks. You're like, okay, we lost that one. And basically the idea was your wins outweigh your losses and, you know, you get enough, you know, singles, doubles, triples, home runs to outweigh your you know, your strikeouts. And he had done very well doing that. We were going to try it. But when me and my cousin drove down one uh, Saturday, we drove down super early and came back super late, we were just like, this isn't for us. It was like we took out the worst of the worst zip codes and it was still super, super rough. Um, my mom had said from the beginning, she was not, she did not, her role was not going to be driving down to do stuff. And my cousin was working a full time job in finance. Uh, a real estate agent and I think was about to have his second kid and I just saw the writing on the wall I was like okay so this is going to fall to me in about 6-12 months uh, so I was like okay this works there's a, a reproducible business plan here but just wasn't right for us so mm -hmm. when we sat down with John again we were like hey thanks but no thanks and it just kind of came up in the end he was like hey by the way I've got this 8 unit deal I'm raising money for um, you know would you guys have any interest and we were like well you know, tell us more about it. Like what is, you know, tell us more about apartments and multifamily and stuff. So he kind of filled us in and let us know what was going on. And, you know, we went away and did a little bit more research and we came back we said, we actually think this would be a better fit for what we're looking to do. We said, we'll invest a little bit of money, but can we just pick your brain on stuff? And he said, sure. So we would like get together like once a week, twice or every other week, something like that. I forget what it was. And as we started talking to him more, we said, Hey, can, we want to be involved basically on your side or learn how to do it more. How can we help you? What are some things we can do? So he was trying to launch a local meetup. So we basically took that off his plate and we started doing that. Um, then we started trying to look for more properties in and around that uh, eight unit building. So we actually bought another 17 there. And then um, within that meetup, we had somebody else bring a, a deal, our first deal in Jacksonville here, an 82 unit. That's how we got down here. And, you know, partnered on that. So that's how we were able to kind of partner on, you know, the 100 plus units. And it was through that process of like starting to work together and stuff that me and him 
you know, started talking more, getting to know each other more. And then just happened to one time, I don't even remember how it happened, but I was like, you know, we just met the two of us instead of all four of us. And we just got talking. I was telling him what's going on. It just kind of organically came up and, you know, about the stock brokerage stuff. Like I didn't know, we didn't meet him because of that. It just happened to be a thing that we had known each other for a few months at least. And it came up after the fact. And, you know, I just kind of told him I was trying to leave because I was desperate at that point to look for something else. I was about to quit with no other job lined up. And, you know, I don't know why he suggested it, but he did. And, you know, I went over there and, you know, he offered me and I basically you know, said yes right away because I knew, you know, the opportunity was going to be nice. Um, and yeah, just, I mean, look, I took a pay cut, a pretty hefty one to go over there. I was, you know, I think I was getting like 300 bucks a week or something. So it's, you know, it was like a glorified internship almost. Um, but, you know, for me, I thought the, the opportunity to learn was going to be worth it. And I thought it would be a more organic and better suited situation than like paying for mentorship. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, look, it was literally just right place, right time. And, you know, willing to ask for it basically, you know, when the possibility came up and then, you know, just taking a chance on it. Right. I mean, you know, it, it wasn't the most glorious thing in the world. And then, you know, sticking around and asking questions and, you know, doing their grunt work for six, 12, 18 months before I really started like contributing and running stuff and having ownership so like you know I don't know how many people would have stuck around for you know 6 12 18 months not making much I mean eventually it was more but still I probably was making you know 35 40 grand for a while there and up in New York that's a lot less than a lot of other places so mm-hmm. you know it was about that too I really like that you know and thanks for sharing with a little more detail because you know that notion you know work work to learn not work to earn that's that's a perfect example you get to a point in life where yes, you you need to be sufficiently compensated, but you know you were in your twenties, I believe, and why not? It's at a time when I, I'm just assuming you could afford to do it, and yeah. um, you could live frugally. You know, <clears throat> even if it is a few hundred bucks a week, which I mean I, I I can see where that would get tight, but as long as you're learning and mm-hmm. look what you've done, you've been able to go out and start Jag Communities and Jag Capital Partners. Sounds like it was well worth it. I think um, a lot of people view real estate as kind of like a quick pop game, and the truth is. It's kind of like a quick pop game with a bunch of front, you know, lead time and loaded work. So it's like you might be at the closing table and boom, somebody makes 50, 100, a quarter million or millions of dollars in what appears to be like an all at once moment. What what the average person doesn't see is the three, six, 12 months. It could be years trailing before you lined up that deal and funded it. And uh, or maybe it's a disposition. Maybe you're finally seeing the benefit of something that you were bird dogging five years ago, finally purchase, go through the asset management, the CapEx schedule, reposition, and then refire sale. So everyone wants to be the seller lately. Everybody wants to be the seller at the closing table. But I mean, look, you were doing this hard work. You started in 2016 with the flipping. You did four and a half years with Toro. So I mean, you've been earning your stripes as you go. So I would just like to highlight that about Chris's story because I think Chris is pretty inspirational especially for your age group mm-hmm. and um and i think that you're one to watch i think people are going to see you do a lot of cool things but the point is you were willing to put your head down and do barely compensated work for almost five years but yeah. you learned a lot well you know i'll say the later years i did extremely well you know like eventually as i started running things and doing things you know i was able to earn you know six figures and, and do very well which is how i was able to then you know save up enough to 
move and go off on my own and, mm -hmm. and do these right were you, a, were you getting into the equity or was it like yeah it was more of like um you know so i would get a percentage of um you know the the fees or profit whenever we bought or sold a deal okay um so i was never worked into like the general partnership which is you know when i left i left a lot of money on the table as well so that was another thing too it wasn't you know i took another massive pay cut to come i'm actually you know i don't know if i still am but at least for the first six to 12 months i was technically losing money every month like you know coming down i built you know the the 10 the 10 years 500 million that's just a a quota number there's breakdowns for every year of how much acquired how much revenue how much income how many employees um you know every single year and i have different metrics to look for and you know when i was coming down that was really important to me um you know kind of figuring out like hey is this even going to work like is this even worth it like you know forget even does the real estate you purchase work like does the whole business plan and model work? and i know it works right because there's hundreds of you know small you know maybe probably even thousands small to mid-sized shops and investors out there that you know do this stuff so it it does work i would say almost obviously um but what i was trying to do within that sphere would that work and then mm -hmm. would the payoff also be worth it because you know it takes a lot of time energy and effort to get to you know, 10 years, it's, you know, 500 million under management, it'll be over 600 million acquired because I'm baking and selling stuff. Uh, it's about revenue between five and 8 million and it's, you know, anywhere from 60 to 90 people employed. So, you know, that's not something that's easy. So the payoff has to be worth it. I'm not going to do that to make $150,000 a year. That's silly. I can go find a job with my skill set right now that'll probably pay me that to be an acquisitions guy or something. So why would I spend all that time and money to only make that plus also then your business doesn't have a, a wide margin either in case you miss um, you know so it's important for me to really understand kind of high level what the goals are what the metrics are is this doable is this worth it and everything one thing that's unique about I think the you got a couple things so with the Toro job you had you got introduced to North Florida and North mm -hmm. Florida has been a nationally recognized uh, apartment multifamily market mm -hmm. um, I got lucky. I already lived. I'm from Jacksonville. I was born in Jacksonville. So mm. I just happened to hail from an area that was doing really well. So yeah. a lot of my first investments, you know, those that have been watching these shows or following us on Instagram, you might already know I started in commercial appraisal, brokerage, and, and, and law. But appraisal being first, you know, I had to cover all kinds of markets. And it was always interesting to see like, some people just buy in their backyard no matter where they live, and that's, that's just what they're comfortable with. They want to be able to drive something within two hours. People have different rules of thumb. But the real savvy larger groups, I mean, they're looking at the country, and they're just saying, okay, this is all our backyard. We're going to make it. We're, we're going to pick our markets. Mm -hmm. So um, you find North Florida. Obviously, this has become like your headquarters. Your, re, your primary residence is now here, and this is where you want to grow. I'm sure you'll eventually maybe for your – for your ambitions, you'll probably have, you may or may not get a little bit outside of North sure. Florida. But um, what's cool is because it sounds like Toro wasn't quite as vertically integrated as you mm -hmm. want to be. Um, let's pause for one second and just explain to the audience, when you say you want to be a vertically, vertically integrated operation, what all would that entail? Yeah, so I mean, the easy one is having property management in-house. Toro would outsource property management to a third-party company, and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, but like I said, I just think the potential for increased operations and control is significantly higher, um, especially in the space that I was looking to enter. I mean, it's really tough to find very good property managers in multifamily sub, I'll say 100 units, really probably 150. Um, and then even if you do find one, 
you may only find one and then any property manager who's ambitious and worth their salt is eventually going to probably move up and stop managing in that space i'm not saying there's not people that can't work because i'm sure there's going to be somebody that listens to this and is like i own you know 10 units in kentucky and i live in california and my property manager is great they probably are but i guarantee there's things about them that are not as good as somebody that's managing 150 200 units um you know whether it's their communication, their technology, um, their ability to analyze the market. I mean, it could be a, a million things, but everybody's got their, you know, their pros and their cons. And then, you know, I just think like anybody else trying to build a business, you know, the amount of work that goes into closing a million dollar property versus a $10 million property is not 10 times the effort. Right. It's slightly more. Mm -hmm. So you might as well do a $10 million property because the money you and everybody else is going to make, the dollars are significantly bigger. Um, and one thing, I'll pause you real quick there, Chris. Uh, one thing that I that I like about going a little bigger. Now, my biggest acquisition just with me and my partner Ray, we did 83 units, and it's in it's in Georgia, it's in Valdosta, which is um, almost exactly two hours from here. So it's not a horrible drive, but we had I'd say the scariest thing about that deal, just to your point, we're not vertically integrated, to use your your term there. We have third party property management. Valdosta Properties, Karen, thank you. And those gals are doing a great job for us. I actually feel like we got somewhat lucky because we interviewed a couple larger groups. One just straight up said, no, like we, we're not taking you on. I think just because we were under 100 units. Uh, and, and we got, I feel like we got fortunate with Valdosta Properties. But to your point, when I had my Jacksonville portfolio, it wasn't huge, but I was just cutting my teeth. I had a, an eight unit, a 28 unit, a three, a couple at the beach that I was running as Airbnb. So, you know, 40, 40-ish units around town. And um, I used my brokerage license to technically manage it, but I was staffing some 1099 um, employees underneath me to really do like the hands-on work. What I liked was I knew who was doing maintenance. I knew who was collecting the rent. Um, I was probably a little more hands-on than I needed to be, but you know, back up, this is this is like five years ago. I think part of why now I can asset manage my own management over there, like I can sit back, review their P&Ls and rent rolls, drive the property, look at our unit turns. Part of why I feel strong or at least confident enough is because we were doing the vertical integration here in Jacksonville. And just not to put words in your mouth, but if you vertically integrate and you later outsource it, you're gonna be a way stronger asset manager because you started vertical mm. where you're like, you know, you already know everything they're doing or, or yeah. most of it. So it's a lot easier to manage. Would you agree? Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Uh, my only thought with what you're saying is, like you said, you can find somebody that's great, right, in anything. The, my point is that the number of backups you have for that 83 unit in Valdosta, Georgia is a lot less than 150 unit in Jacksonville, Florida. You can find several at least decent managers that yeah, maybe they don't do as well as you would like. Um, but they're probably not going to be bad and you're probably not going to have to really worry about them. Yep. You're not going to have nearly as the, as many backups for that type of property. And the same thing too, right? Yeah. For a 10 unit in Jacksonville, right? When I was still in New York, I did not, I could not easily come up with 10 other property managers I could go to. Whereas, and it's not just because I worked in the 150 unit space for three years. I mean, partially, but it's just easier to find. They're a lot more readily available it's you have a lot more other options which when you're investing it's risk reward so now when you have less people that can run it and you're far away that adds another element of risk to a deal versus well i'm here right if i'm managing it and you know the two people i have working for me who really do the day-to-day -day stuff 
well, if they're sick or they're out, well, I'm here. So God forbid I can stop everything I'm doing and manage it you until can I find somebody else. Yep. Um, or I can find a property management company and you know I can fact check them every week if I need to. Um, so my element of risk is significantly reduced. And that's how, when I'm yeah. doing all of this stuff, that's how I look at it. And that's, yeah. I think a lot of people don't really, it's tough, it's easy to calculate reward, right? You put numbers in and you spit out a cash flow or an IRR and annualize. It's really tough to calculate the risk side of things. Um, but that's, you know, what, kind of what I pay attention to more. And it's more yeah. of a, you know, there is ways to put numbers on it, right? You put down criteria and you rank things one through five or one through 10, and then you add it up and, you know, that'll give you kind of your risk profile. Um, but it's not as concrete as plugging in numbers into a model and it's spitting out a 15 IRR or whatever it is. I totally agree. I mean, if we, to be totally candid, if if we lost our management in Georgia, now Karen needs to get off this if she's listening. Um, I might have to pack up the Silverado and, you know, find, an, you know, find yep. some housing in Georgia just mm-hmm. to, just to keep the ship, you know, righted. Now, to Chris's point, your larger asset classes, we're talking about apartments and multifamily, but... This does. This also goes with larger retail office towers. Let's say you're going to do like a bigger downtown building. Um, your management, the bigger the building and the bigger the MSA, the more management you're going to have. So mm-hmm. by getting a smaller property in a tertiary or secondary market, you're just whittling on down. I mean, if you want to do a quadruplex in like Dothan, Alabama or somewhere small, you, you might only have like a couple of like fly-by-night real estate companies that would even run it. And then another thing while you were talking, you know, Jacksonville, I'll just speak to this market, you know, my 40 units or so that I had vertically integrated a few years back, um, we probably had like 20, 15 to 20 vouchers at any given time. When I say voucher, I mean section eight or HUD. That's a nuanced management as well. So I think that uh, that's another thing to consider if you're going to go into this investment space. I like the voucher programs, obviously the rent it's quite literally direct deposited into your operating account. And, and you, when you look at that account on like the third, assuming there's no holidays, the money is there. You, you can just set your watch by it. Um, however, the, the paperwork is, you know, triple to five times. Every time you have a turn, you have a new inspection of the condition. You might have to wait on the inspection. If you fail the inspection, you could lose another 10 days. So your lag time on the vacancy could run double or triple as well. So pros and cons. But why I bring up the vouchers is, you know, to Chris's point too, let's say you're in a small market with a small property and you have some HUD or Section 8 housing authority tenants. You might, there might be no one there to manage. I mean, you might be stuck with the only scenario being to Mm self-manage and work with the local housing authority. So I like what you brought up about the vertical integration. And I presume you would also have like, in-house maintenance or in-house capex, um, and that is another reason to go like eighty to hundred units or more. Is generally depending on who you talk to and how old the property is. At around eighty to hundred plus, you can support one full-time guy. So um, yeah, some people can... will do it with less. Some people will wait for more. In my opinion, like if you've got like a 1950s, 60s, 70s vintage, where like let's be honest, things are kind of constantly having to be. Yeah. But you might even need somebody full-time at, at, at less. Um, but I think a lot of people look at that 100-unit barometer to keep one guy constantly doing work orders. Yeah, I would say, you know, once you hit that, like, 70 mark, um, depending upon what you buy it for, because your payroll cost will go up per unit, which is what kills deals, um, It's you could probably have a full-time office person, a full-time maintenance person. 
um, your your salary is going to be the same if it's 70 or 100 because you'll probably use the same amount of people. So your per unit cost on that on a 70 unit versus 100 will be a lot higher. Mm-hmm. And we've looked at a few of those. Um, but yeah, I would say in that 60 to 80 mark is when you start really playing it. You know, 50 maybe you have just a full time maintenance person and your office staff can split the 50 and another 50 somewhere mm-hmm. else or whatever. Um, but yeah, once you start getting to 100, you'll have a full-time office, full-time maintenance, um, depending upon the vintage of the property but and how well it's been renovated and maintained. You know, you start getting 130, 150, you'll probably add a second maintenance person. Uh, you get the 200. You know, On average, every 100 units, you add a person in the office and in the field. Um, if it's really old and run down, you may have an additional maintenance person. Then, you know, if it was 200, you might have three. If it's 250, you might have three, maybe even four, who knows. Mm-hmm. You know, if it's 350 unit property, you may have four, you may have three. At that size, you may even have five, because if you need like a groundskeeper to do like all the trash and stuff. So, um, you know, we never really, I never really did anything over 320, which I think we had, I wanna say, I think we had four, because it was a very, very old property that needed a lot of work. Um, you know, so, but on average, you know, one in, one out, you know, is what they'll say, one in the office, one out in the field yeah. uh, for every hundred units roughly. And, you know, plus or minus 25, 50 units on that. And so um, that actually highlights a couple of things. So to Chris's point, let's just use the 70 that Chris threw out there. 70 being like a threshold where the property can probably support one office guy or gal and one guy or gal out doing maintenance. A lot of the higher yield properties right now are going to be smaller than that. Um, and part of the reason is what we just talked about. These are properties that may have been purchased 10, 12, 15, 20 plus years ago. Uh, physicians, IT people, attorneys, they were just side investments. Maybe the rents haven't been moved in a long time. Maybe these, maybe there's some deferred maintenance. There can be some really nice value add multifamily to be purchased, but bear in mind, if you go in and you buy the eight, the 12, the 20, the 28, the even the 40, you're probably, you're probably not going to have enough revenue to support someone to be dedicated to your property on a maintenance or leasing side. So um, what's one solution? You could just grow. So maybe instead of just buying 40, maybe you buy another 20, another 40. And as long as they're all within maybe a, you know, 30 to 60 minute drive time, you might be able to share staff and run all the leasing from one location, maybe run it remote. Now people are getting pretty good with virtual tours. I don't want to go too far down that rabbit hole because it's probably its own entire separate podcast discussion. But um, the asset management, here's one big takeaway. Chris gave you a size of 70, I would say roughly 70 to 100. Um, Full-time office, full-time maintenance. And then to both of ours point, by learning the business vertically from from purchase to leasing to management to rehabbing, CapEx schedule just means turning the units or doing larger scope projects. or rebranding. Once you've learned how to do all that, you may not do it all again in the future, but you'll be a lot better at outsourcing it and you'll know where the pitfalls are. All right, I'm gonna I'm gonna pivot off of that for a second. I like that. Um, we're gonna go into a little bit of mindset stuff because you know you're you're calm and collected, you're very like polished. I mean I, I'm really proud of you. You're doing a lot of good stuff. Thank you. What on the mindset side um, you know, do you, do you think about, I mean, you went from, you've done some interesting things. You had a, correct me if I'm wrong, you had a high income stock job. You tried flipping some houses with mom that didn't quite work out. And the Toro period, at least the beginning, uh, low compensation, high, high learning. And then you started to make good money. Now you're on your own. 
how do you keep like the gas in the tank? And you seem to have a great long and short term vision. Um, any big influences you would mention or just kind of tell us a little bit about like your mindset and, and influences. Yeah, I mean, for me, it's, you know, I like to think about like legacy and like what's, you know, I don't know. I, I just, I'm always looking at the long term. Like, I don't care about the dollar today. Like dollar today is nice, but, you know, I want to know that, you know, what I'm building for now is going to last decades, right? Like, you know, it'd be cool if like my kids took it over or something, but if they don't want to, like I would never force them, you know, eventually, not that I have kids yet, but, um, you know, that would be a nice option to have. And also too, from the standpoint of being an investor, like longevity is key, right? There's a lot of, you know, big families and developers who would just roll and roll and roll and push and then go bust. And you're like, how did that happen? And it's like, well, because they took one development into another, into another, and just kept reinvesting everything. Um, and then eventually they had one that went bust. So for me, you know, looking at the downside is key, right? I'm not trying to build, you know, a hundred billion dollar company. I'm not trying to be worth a billion dollars. Like, I don't need that. That's, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm not trying to be that large. I'm really just building a business because it's a challenge. Um, I would like to be more than, you know, comfortable. Like, I would like to be very comfortable. That would be nice, you know, not have to really worry too much. And then also, you know, the, the big portion is I also want to create a cool place to work and like a nice place to work. I have a lot of friends and close family and stuff that have have and have had very poor work environments for one reason or another. Could be pay, could be time off, could be vacations, could be, you know, they get nickel and dimed on their hours and stuff. Um, and that just seems ridiculous to me. Like how, you know, how can anybody create a job like that? And then how can anybody want to work there? And it's like, I don't know. I just feel like I can do it better and have a good time doing it. Like, I say to Toro, like there, I there, I almost left Toro after a couple of years because I wanted to, I was living in Brooklyn, New York at the time and driving out to Long Island. So doing a reverse commute, which isn't too bad. Um, but a lot of my friends and roommates worked in the city and they would have like work friends and like go out to happy hour and stuff. And like, I was, you know, mid twenties, late twenties. And I like that idea. And that was like part of the lifestyle I wanted. And I was really close to like looking for another job. But then I had so many of those friends complaining about their work and their work environment and like not getting vacation or paid time off. And like Toro was amazing about that stuff. Like if I wanted to take a vacation, like, okay, cool, go for it. You're sick. Okay. Don't come in. You want to work from home today? Okay. No big deal. Um, you know, you want to, you know, let's go grab lunch for an hour. You know, let's kind of chat shit. You know, it's not a, it was just a very nice working environment and I think it worked really well. And I think they're very happy with it too, because even though I got paid very well, I also, you know, made them millions of dollars in the deals we bought. Um, so, you know, I don't think they were complaining either. And, you know, I just think that's a, a good way to build a business. And I just think it would be enjoyable for myself to, you know, kind of in that role. So, um, you know, that's just kind of the, the motivation for me, um, you know, and just that challenge of it really. So for me, building that 10 year plan is, you know, if I want to create, a, you know, an environment for people to come and work for, well, I have a responsibility to those future people to make sure that this is a business that is sustainable, that can, they can be in for as long as they want to be in, that can help them and their families do whatever they want to do, um, you know, and help them live a lifestyle that they want to. So like, not only do I have a responsibility to me and my family, but now, you know, the people that work for me already and the people in the future, like I have a responsibility to them, you know, so 
looking at that and the long-term aspect and not sacrificing for, uh, you know, the short-term dollar, um, you know, was always really important to me. Um, and I would say, you know, there's a lot of people that I listen to and, and read and, and do different stuff. But I think the, the person that kind of really changed that whole mindset for me um, was Gary Vee and listening to him talk mm. about a lot of that stuff. Um, it just kind of really resonated with me and it felt like a lot of the stuff that he would talk about I was kind of experiencing in my workplace at Toro and it was always something that really bugged me for you know for other people when I would hear you know people I care about you know either really close friends or family um, you know it it hurts to hear somebody you care about hurting and not enjoying where they spend you know seven eight nine ten hours a day and you know a third of their life basically while they're working you know that's not fun it's yeah. not fun to hear about that so um, yeah, that's just all the, the stuff for me is I don't, I'm not flashy. Like I don't really care about stuff. Like the nice thing I have is, you know, my car, but it's still used and it's not even that nice. And, um, you know, it's not like it's a hundred thousand dollar car. It's like 2025, you know, it's a Mercedes. It's nice, but you know, I bought it used for like 25 grand. Like it's not, you know, you could buy a Honda Civic brand new for 35 and pay more. So, yeah, you know, that's like the flashiest thing about me. Um, and sometimes I kind of actually regret it. Like, I'm like, why didn't I just buy a, a cheaper car? Um, so, like, I don't really care about the money. Um, you know, it's just more about the lifestyle and, like, enjoying of the other stuff. Sounds like, and again, not to put words in your mouth, like, freedom, control. Definitely, I hear a, a sweeping control. And you have this, like, a altruistic angle where it's like you want to lift some people up as well. Our um, our last guest, who actually hasn't aired yet, uh, Obi Dorsey, he, he interviewed. He'll be out soon. And... Um, he's got a real altruistic message if you watch uh, or listen to uh, the last episode with Obi. And I, I like that, Chris, because there's a choice. If you're having success, you know, you could just kind of silo off and just continue to feed yourself and your mm -hmm. needs. And there's really no limit. You know, the wealthiest princes in Dubai, are they necessarily happy? No. Do they have good family relationships? Mm -hmm. um, deep connections maybe not some some do some don't but the point is money alone doesn't make people poll statistically a whole lot happier mm -hmm. you get up to the last thing i saw was like around 60 grand per household and that number kind of makes sense because around 50 60 per household all of your like really core needs are met i could see where your happiness would slide beneath mm -hmm. that but for those of us <clears throat> that have like long eclipsed that income you don't incremental incrementally get happier with every you know, thousand dollar a month clip until you're whatever you're bringing in. I mean, I won't name any names, but I've got clients that are, you know, not, that really don't work and are tax, you know, after tax over a million a year, they can go anywhere they want. Um, it, they have the same problems that you and I have. So what I love yeah. is that you're looking to build an environment where people can come work for you. I think you said if your 10 year vision plays out, it's going to be like a, almost a hundred people or it's call it 90 people, yeah, the better part that. of a hundred people. Um, on staff and you want to have a unique environment. I think that's, that's, I don't think that's a common answer. And, and I applaud you for that because it's so selfless. Really, you could do what you're doing, silo off, keep a super skeleton crew, start to outsource some of the things you don't outsource now, be wealthy and be maybe a little more isolated, but that's not your goal. You want to rise people with you. Yeah. Like I could, and I've, and I thought about it, you know, the whole thing come down, like I could easily just create, you know, be like a a fund of funds, right? Basically just go out, raise money from the investors I do now, raise a fund and invest it into other people's deals. And I could be a one person crew for tens of millions of dollars, then hire an admin person, hire a secretary, eventually hire an acquisitions person, hire an asset man, you know, 
be sub 10 people for hundreds of millions of dollars and, you know, have a small office with five people and probably make a lot more than I would be and quicker. Um, but like, I don't know, it just doesn't sound fun. I mean, it's, it's fun from the standpoint of like, I like analyzing deals and like raising money. Like that, that stuff is fun. So like I would have fun from that standpoint, but you know, I love, which I haven't gotten to do a lot lately cause I've been running around like crazy and I do feel bad about it. Um, but like, I love going to like on site and seeing Kelly and John who work for me, you know, as our, our property manager and maintenance supervisor, I'm just like bullshitting for 45 minutes. And yeah, like it's not a great use of my time dollar per dollar, but like they've also helped me out tremendously in situations where I've needed them. And it's like, if I, you know, like I've been awake a few times, we have an ongoing joke every time I go away, something terrible happens and like they have to deal with it. And so like, luckily the last few times have not been anything too crazy. So hopefully it peaked and you know, now it Mm -hmm. goes down for the remaining time. But like, you know, if I, if I don't know, if I didn't have them, I don't know if I would have felt comfortable going away when I have. So now I have to sacrifice part of my life or, you know, I would be in a lot more stress and anxiety while I am away. Um, So like dollar for dollar in that second doesn't make sense. No, but when it translates to something like that, I mean, it's, I mean, how do you put a price on that? Yeah. You know, it's really tough. So like, I'm, you know, I'm super thankful for them. Um, and you know, like that's the stuff that, you know, helps do that. Like, I don't know, you know, I just think people, people will stick, you know, that you see people don't quit jobs, they quit managers. Right. And I think the inverse is true. I think people will stick around for, you know, give up stuff for, you know, having an environment they really like and enjoy and feel valued and stuff like that. So. I like that. People don't quit jobs, they quit managers. Uh, never heard that, but I think it does resonate true. Um, yeah, you, you touched on a lot of good stuff there. Um, you know, one thing that that I kind of wanted to like just drill a little bit deeper into was, mm-hmm. you know, um, you know, real estate being a team sport. And I, again, I know I know Chris a little bit professionally, but your high capacity, your high operation, like you could do a lot on your own. But I think what's interesting is you've learned, and I've kind of come to the same epiphany over the years, real estate as a team sport is so much more enjoyable. So my background, brokerage, appraisal, law. So, And I've done deals like this. I am my own broker, my own underwriter. I do everything with the lender, all my own bookkeeping. You know, um, Then I did my own title and escrow, my own settlement. I can't appraise my own deal. But it's illegal, but I can close my own deal and do my Wouldn't own title. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, it would be <laughs> nice. I do my own valuation and I, I, I feed it to them, you know, spoon it to them, but they don't yeah. always take it. But I've done every little, review my title, study my survey, look at all my exceptions, and I'm wearing all these hats. And what can be a little lonely is, and I mentioned this on another episode, is like you have that big closing, that big capital event, or you acquire a property that you know is going to lead to a nice capital event Mm -hmm. or cash flow in the immediate future. If you haven't shared that with anybody, if you've been doing everything in your own little chamber, sometimes I don't even tell like my friends and family because they're they're maybe not in my sphere. They might, I might feel like they don't care. Mm-hmm. Not that they don't care about me, but they don't care to hear the nuances of what I'm of doing course, every yeah. day. I'll have that great moment. We leave closing or whatever it is, or I get that big contract, or here comes the wire transfer, whatever it is. And they want to go have like a nice dinner with me, but I'm not really celebrating the victory with them because they didn't like go through it with me. Mm-hmm. And I think when I hear you talk about building a team and bringing family on in a work environment, I like that because I think you're just going to have a lot more like fruitful and um, and like the whole picture 
will be just good for your soul, good for your being to do it with a group. Because real estate as a team sport, just because I'll say it one more time, just because you can do everything, it doesn't mean you should. And here's the thing, you may do it alone for a period of time because you can, and it's honestly the cheapest way to do things, but I would make it a goal to work with good people and treat it as a team sport and have shared victories because burnout is real. And I think a quick way to burn out is doing this all alone, not sharing your frustrations. You really can't even feel great when you do win because no one else really knows it. And you just, you'll, you'll burn out of the game, you'll wash out. So I think that there's a lesson there. Yeah, I mean, you know, the first, you know, the, the first three deals now that we've done is luckily with family, so I have that, but it's different too. They're, you know, I'm the one doing all the stuff. They're just helping me out and basically being an investor. Um, the development deal I'm doing right now, I don't have development experience, so I went out and found a partner to kind of fill in my gaps of knowledge. His name is Brian. Um, but it's also just a lot more fun because like we just sit down and talk and like talk about the deal and go through it together and like I'm going to be super excited to like go through the whole thing with him for, you know good, bad or indifferent mm -hmm. um, you know because we talk about it fairly frequently and you know we talk about other things and um, I was very much when I started this like I want to do all the different aspects internally and now I'm leaning more towards like, okay, you know what? I'll bring a, you know, in a GP partner to help with, you know, capital raising. Or if somebody brings me a deal, I'll split it with them because honestly just having that partner is more fun and I'd rather it be more enjoyable than make more money. Cause like, again, what's, you know, the, the dollars isn't gonna like be a huge difference pending it works with everything, right? I'm not gonna do something that hurts me, but pending it works in with everything we're doing you know, it just adds to it, doesn't uh, subtract from it. That's a great attitude. It's a great attitude. I love it. Um, so we kind of know your goals. We know where you've been. You're you're a younger guy, but you've done a lot, a lot thousands of trans or units, thousands of units underneath your belt. An ambitious, we'll call it, a, you know, a five thousand unit portfolio is what you know, a ten year goal. Yeah, um, the way things are going, it'll probably be closer, like twenty five hundred to four thousand, just the, the way valuations yeah. are going. But yeah. <laughs> Unless you go deep in the hood, um, yeah, or if we, you know, if we start doing, yeah, or we, you know, if we start doing more development stuff, then obviously, you know, we're building to like, you know, the townhome stuff is going to be like two hundred a door. If yeah. we want more strict multifamily, it'd probably be low to mid one hundreds. I think even now though, they're building for you know mid to high one hundreds. So yeah, you know, it'll, it would be even less, but be that as it may. And for those that don't know it, I mean, Florida has just a massive positive migration, positive immigration right now in just Northeast Florida. Depending on what index you look at. We're picking up like 30,000 people a year right now. So um, we don't have that housing. And roughly half of that 30, roughly, are going to need a place to rent. And the other half are going to want a place to buy, roughly. I think it's more like 46% rental. But um, just around the numbers, I mean, we don't have 7,500 new apartments coming out. Um, so, and we don't have, well, it would you know, be, we don't have the inventory. 15, it would be 15,000. Oh, I apologize. Yeah. That, I was the say, old I think, stat I think was 15. This, now yeah, it's 30. I think last year we was like four to 6,000 new multifamily units. And I think this year is supposed to be like, I want to say like six to eight or something like that. I'm glad you jumped in. I was using our old numbers because we're up to 30. You're right. Yeah. So we need call it 15 multifamily. It, it, whatever it is. It's no, you're right. Delta, you're right. And it's been building up for years, mm -hmm. which is, you know, it's great. Yeah. Pro business, no tax, good weather. So I don't, I don't think that trend's going to stop. Um, yeah. I, so you've got great goals. I think, I really think you're one of the guys that I've met that's, you're going to get there. And I bet we end up doing some deals together in the future. Um, 
I'm going to let Chris tell you a little bit about like his hobbies and where you can find him. And if you have one, whatever, one big piece of advice to impart on the audience. So um, where can people find you, your hobbies and a, and a solid piece of advice for the audience? Sure. Uh, hobbies. Let's see. Um, love playing soccer. You know, that's what I went to school for. I've been playing it all my life. So, you know, play it, watch it, all that stuff. Um, you know, any, you know, going to the gym, stuff like that, going for runs. Uh, we've got two dogs, which I love, you know, taking on walks, playing with, wrestling, uh, all that good stuff. So that's pretty much it. Um, that's the main stuff. But I mean, you know, traveling here and there. Um, been big into reading uh, fiction books right now, recently, which has been fun. We just got into this new author called uh, Brandon Sanderson, who's got like, I don't know, like 15 or 20 books, and they're like, massive so we've been reading through those right now which is a nice kind of way to just get out of your own headspace yeah. and get away and stuff so really been enjoying that um but that's most of the main stuff but um yeah best way to get in touch with me uh if anybody wants to email me that's pretty easy it's chris at jag-communities.com j-a-g hyphen communities.com um if you have any interest in partnering on deals investing in deals or anything like that uh, just shoot me an email. At some point in the future, we'll have a link on our website, but all of our websites are going through revamping. So if you do want to check out our website, it's just jag-communities.com. Uh, if it looks like crap right now, give me a couple months until we get it right. Uh, we're actively working on it. If it looks nice, then you know hopefully we did a good job. Um, or you can find me any social media. The main ones are Instagram, at chris.grenzig, LinkedIn, Chris Grenzig, but YouTube, TikTok, Facebook, all of them. Uh, you can find me there. And then what was the last thing? And, we'll, and then just to dovetail on that, in the show notes, if you guys go to the bottom, we'll hyperlink in um, Chris's contact information if you want to try and find him afterwards. Um, and then if you've got, so we know where we can find you. We know you like to play soccer and wrestle the dogs. Um, if you've got kind of a single uh, takeaway that you would impart, you know, to, um, you know, kind of like that classic question of like what, you know, kind of like what separates the wheat from the chaff in this, in this whole world, um, what would you tell people? Um, I mean, there's a bunch, but I think the one right now that's kind of resonates is like, there's a lot of mediocre, dumb people out there. So if they can do it, why not me? Or why not you? I like that. It's, <laughs> um, I think a lot of people end up going out on their own because they're, you talk about people quit managers, not jobs earlier. They're like, well, and, and, and the company, it might actually be very solid, but if, if they're just like disenfranchised with a the manager, they're like, you know what? If this guy's running whatever he's running, including me, then I'm just gonna go out and maybe do this on my own. Mm -hmm. And then at least if you if you fail, just try to fail forward. At least try and fail and, and glean a lesson out of it. Um, you know, Obi on the last interview, and I'll say it because it's on the interview and it won't be edited out. He found out he ran an ad for like three years on Bing instead of Google, and it was an employee that doesn't work for him anymore. It's like 60k. And, and, it, and he was like, you know, and watch the episode. He, he says he, you know, he wasn't happy. He sulked for a little bit and then he moved right on and forgave himself. And the truth is you have to fail forward. If you weren't willing to put that task on someone else so you can free yourself up for that $10,000 an hour, metaphorically, sometimes literally, thing that you have to do, you won't be able to grow. So yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't want to spend $60,000 on being ads that aren't really going anywhere, but you learn from it probably doesn't happen again. And in the meantime, you did great things because your time was freed up. So I actually really like that answer. Uh, we know where people can find you. So I think we're in pretty good shape. This has been a great episode. Remember, if you're liking what you're saying, um, go ahead and go in and rate 
the show and subscribe or follow. So on Spotify or iTunes, just click right on there. Give it a five star if you're enjoying it. If you're not, just don't rate it and, uh, <laughs> and subscribe. Uh, obviously, Yield Coach, we're on Instagram, Facebook. We have a YouTube channel where if you want to see this interview in video format, um, Chris has a killer Adidas hoodie. He's got the soccer thing locked in. That'll be on the YouTube, and um, and this show will. You know, if you're watching this live, it'll it'll launch pretty soon here, probably in less than a week. So I really enjoyed this. Um, check out the Instagram for any. That's where we put our most like up to date information and announcements. We'll try to announce in the future when we're going live, so you live people can shoot in Q and A stuff, and we can try and field it at the end. But for that, I think we're up to speed. So this is Coach Brown reminding everybody to lace up and leave it all on the field. Take care.